it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Something seems really dumb about this, but here we go. Listening to the One Sensational Shot Network, this is the Evening Glass. I'm Fletcher Walton and I'm joined by Ada McCaffrey once again for a look back at 2018 and a warm welcome to 2019. We've also got the Academy Award nominations just came out, so we'll take a run through those. Although I think it's an indicator of quality. I don't think the winner is, but I think the nominations generally fall into line with some of the better films. So here's a good example. So um, Paul Schrader's First Reformed. It didn't get the acting nod. For Ethan Hawke, but he did get a best screenplay nod, and I think that First Reformed was definitely one of the ten, maybe twenty best films of the year, and it is in the Academy Awards conversation. There's a few notable, there's a few that are missing, but generally speaking, I think the Academy Awards nominations are a good indicator of good films of that year, good Hollywood films of that year, and increasingly good. Uh, either foreign films or films made by foreign directors because Quiron, Del Toro and Inyaritu are all Academy darlings at this point. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I think both that too much attention is given to the Academy Awards. A lot of people complain about who wins what uh, in media and I feel like, well, the only reason it has a standing is because everyone reports on it. You know, the BBC News... You know, I got a Guardian news alert about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. BBC News will have, on the course of a day, um, will we'll feature it ten times, a little rundown of who's been nominated for what. Uh, but I agree. Like At the end of the day, it's um, the Academy Awards are nominated by the people in Hollywood who make that stuff. Sound people nominate the sound Oscar. Actors vote for the actors. Directors vote for the directors. Writers vote for the, writers vote for the writers, so you know it kind of just is. It's a nice insight into what um, people in the industry think is good, uh, and I th- and I kind of know. What, I kind of agree with you. It's not that I like everything that's nominated, but generally speaking, a lot of talented people get get a nod. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and often the films that get left out, you know, one note thing that someone pointed out that Mission Impossible Fallout, which is one of the best reviewed films of the year, didn't get nominated for anything little bit of a surprise, but at the same time, I kind of feel like, well, who cares? I mean, it took $750 million. I'm yeah. sure Tom Cruise doesn't care. This was one of the first points I wanted to come to. You've reminded me. It did finish in the top ten global, right? It made it. I'm fairly sure it did, yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought that Mary Poppins might sweep in. I hadn't considered that there was significant overlap for 18 and 19 takings. I was also concerned, if that's the right word, about Fantastic Beasts. No one saw Venom coming. Aquaman, billion dollar gross. So, and Aquaman was one of those which we thought would do very well. I, I presumed, now I'm not the analyst that you are, but I thought it would come in at three quarters of a billion and knock Mission Impossible down a spot. So it took a billion. I thought that. It, it, it was still grossing money. It's, it's just past a billion. It might wow. hit 1.1 or something. And again, that's all of the DC pictures have been of inferior quality to the Marvel pictures. So the Marvels, if we say their average is, say, 3.5, the DC are more like 2.5. Fallout was the eighth highest grossing. Eight, eight, I, 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 uh, what an achievement. Yeah, 
Is that? I mean, not counting inflation, it's the highest grossing film of Tom Cruise's career. Uh, Biggest Mission Impossible. Before that, it was Mission Impossible 2. Yeah. All those years ago with John Woo. Ironically, the worst one <laughs> by miles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, uh, if, I play, if I played to him. I mean, I think we kind of discussed this last time. I don't know if it made it into the edit, but Cruise isn't the best actor, as you said, but he works hard mm. and he gives you something you haven't seen before. And, you know, in an age where there's a lot of digital fatigue, even films I love, like I like the Marvel films, but I frequently get digital fatigue with just how much green screen they use mm. and just how reluctantly they are to go to a field and film at people in a field <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just nice to see someone with a bit of clout uh, namely Cruz and Macquarie throwing what's he throwing himself out of a plane 103 times just to get yeah. one shot you know that was how many times it was yeah he jumped out of the plane what well, can't remember the name of this, the kind of dive it was the halo halo yeah. dive he did the halo dive like 103 times god damn uh, just to get that sequence of shots and you can see it on screen it looks amazing uh, same with the helicopter thing it's kind of a very visceral real tension there and it's partly informed by the fact that you, you do know he actually did it yeah. and the fact that it looks very very real and that's the kind that's when we talk about verisimilitude the verisimilitude that Cruise brings in its genre in its films it's just as important as what Philip Seymour Hoffman does what Ethan Hawke does what Jennifer Lawrence brings it's important to see Cruz doing that stuff. And I, as soon as you said that it didn't get any nominations, I thought there's a great argument for um, an a Academy stunt Award for stunts. Yeah, yeah Tom absolutely. Cruise would be nominated as his own stuntman. You don't, and also, I think, like, um, because we're heading into a, an, an interesting age for action cinema where there's a lot of obsession with uh, an unbroken shot. Yeah. Um, and you see it with the John Wick guys uh, who have kind of now, they've branched out into doing, like, Deadpool and Atomic Blonde and all this kind of stuff. And the Mission Impossible films, and this probably counts as even actually Daredevil, the Marvel TV series. Every season, they usually have one really long, cool shot where it's just unbroken, and you know, contains loads of like impressive fight choreography and stuff. Um, you know, you don't even have to nominate that many. It's like sound effects editing used to be like what two nominees. Mm. You know, there's certainly like a year where I thought, I think it was 2015, you could nominate Mad Max Fury Road, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. Just nominate those for best stunt work. Yeah. And why you know why not? And you definitely, definitely, no films out there now where you could get two or three high quality nominees, and you could reward a guild. You know, they they do they do good work. They do as good work as sound editors or yeah. makeup and hairstyling. Just give them a give them an Oscar. And their work is astonishingly visible and easy to explain as well. We every Academy Awards and even now within the ceremony itself, it's become a joke that editing and mixing has to be explained. I, for years, I, I, I always thought I knew what they meant, and then I found out when yeah, I got it literally the wrong way around. Transposed. Yeah. So, and, and so, one of the fundamental challenges of the Academy Awards in, in this decade is a balance between artistry and essentially what's commercial. And you can see it, um, you can see the Academy in paroxysms about it because this year they've been very certain to make sure that black-oriented films, I don't even know if you could call it that, but films with black leads have received their dues. But it's been at the expense of female directors this time. Yeah. So no Deborah Granick, which is astonishing. No Lynn Ramsey, which is mental too. No Claire Denis, but we didn't expect that. Unfortunately, I think this is the, this is the, the game that liberal-minded people play. They eat themselves. You can't necessarily balance everything yeah. at once. And, so, and, and alongside wanting to tick laudably wanting to tick a number of um a number of those boxes it also 
wants to honour films that people are actually watching, yeah. while at the same time accepting that Roma and Cold War are two of the best and most important films of its year. Yeah. And that's a tricky one too. I mean, I was thinking about this yesterday. Three or four years ago, the Academy made a push to get more black people in the Academy. One of the ways that you get into the Academy is you get nominated. Yeah. Once, you, once you're nominated, you're in. Uh, but they do, they do, they will let people with a, a good body of work in. Um, like, uh, I know Alan Cumming is someone who's never been nominated, but he's just someone, who, a respected actor that they let in. I disagree that he's got a good body of work. Okay, well, okay. Blimey. But the point is, the point is you don't have to get nominated to get in. Yeah, um, yeah. Which then almost creates a catch-22 situation because people are going to, men, white men, are going to respond to things white men like. There's, no, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but it does create like a thing where the academy then becomes unreflective. Letting more black people in has worked. They did it, and the next year Moonlight won Best Film, and not undeservingly, I, mm. sh- I should point out. Um, and it's really paid off this year because you've got Klansman, you've got uh, uh, Black Panther... Um, not you've also got um, Beale's second film, If Beale Street Could Talk. Sorry, you're not called Beale. What's he called? <laughs> Jenkins. Jenkins yeah. yeah, you've got Jenkins' second film, If If if, uh, if Beale Street Could Talk. So that's really paid off. Which has made it actually got me wondering. Well, can't they do the same with women directors specifically? Like every name you just mentioned, Deborah Granick, um, Lynn Ramsey. I, if they're not members already, you know, let people like that in. You know, yeah. there's a case for doing so. They've directed great films. They've directed several great films. Uh, there's other ones out there. Um, one of the best ones I saw this year was The Breadwinner. I can't remember the woman's first name. Her surname's Twomey. Yeah. Something Twomey. Uh, oh, is it pronounced Toomey, though? Oh, it might be, yes. Uh, she, she's a great director. You know, maybe letting them in, letting them in, maybe that would help uh, be a bit more towards that. Because I have a bit of sympathy for the Academy on the not nominating women thing, because they're such a low proportion of the industry anyway. Yeah, It's like... I don't know. I don't know exactly what the figure is, but I'm fairly sure it's less than twenty percent. And if it is less than twenty percent, then it kind of would oddly make sense that you could feasibly have five nominees and none of them be women. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it just goes back to the point that I often make, which is that Hollywood needs to just hire more female storytellers. If they made up a higher percentage, if they made up forty percent, fifty percent of 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 the directing workforce or the screenwriting workforce, they it would just it should get reflected in in the Academy Award nominations because you know, that they'd be doing half the work. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's too idealistic, but I don't think it's wrong. I'm, I'm torn over it. I'll try and explain it. I don't think art is the right place to take these arguments. However, an award ceremony for commemorating a year in American cinema, which is broadcast on television, the broadcast of which is primarily about ratings and visibility... I think that probably is a good place to take these arguments. I, I think there is I think there is room there to think about inclusion and think about what the Academy wants to present itself as. I, for the longest time, well, for, for all of this century, every single year has seen one of the top ten, one of the at least one of the top ten films of the year directed by a black person, at least one of the top twenty films of the year directed by a lady, but it's been a small cohort of Sofia Coppola, yeah. Claire Denis, Lim Ramsey, when, and they only make one film every three or four years. Yeah. And I've talked or about every this. 15 years, if you're... Uh, <laughs> what's the Wonder Woman director called? I've forgotten her name. You did a monster. Oh, Patty Jenkins. Yeah, Patty yeah. Jenkins. I've talked about that before. I noticed it uh, just about 
10 years ago, um, American Psycho, Boys Don't Cry, and Monster. And each of the directors of those films had to wait a remarkably long time to get their next gig. There are many reasons for that. And one of them, I truly believe, is that those female directors are more are are more artistically inclined than a typical male director. So I always use the example of Rob Marshall, who Chicago did well, and then he got Memoirs of a Geisha, and it's just gone on from there. But I find him a, a, an utterly dull director oh, he's of awful. studio pictures. He's a, he's a musical theatre director who happens to be asked to make movies. Yeah, and he got um, one of the pirates, I think, so he yeah. eventually there was literally There was literally a secret... I mean, Mary Poppins' returns got shunned. I'm really happy, because... <laughs> There's a sequence in that that literally looks like um, it literally looks like National Theatre live broadcast in the way it's been staged. It's just they stage it like a play and they point five cameras at it and cut between them. It's literally that great sunset sequence in uh, La La Land where they're dancing and it's right. just one nice long take. Yes, they're dancing less well than the people in uh, Mary Poppins Return to a Professionals, but I can see what they're doing <laughs> because it's not cutting between all these awful camera angles. Yeah, he's, he's a hack. But yeah, you're right, and yeah, he gets to keep making films. Uh, but the thing is, this, this, one defence you could make of, of him is that at least his films make money. There's plenty of hack directors who direct flops a lot, but they just keep getting given more work. Do you know what I mean? I'm interested in M. Night Shyamalan. Right. Let's talk about him for a moment. His films make money, but they're almost... It wouldn't be fair to say panned, but they're critically derided. It's been so long since he's had a critical hit that now the films that he's well, made recently, which are okay, oh, right, yeah. right? So Split is not unbreakable. It's not The Sixth Sense. But we're so far along in his career that a three out of five <laughs> is triumphed as a return to form. Everyone's rated against their own success. If Spielberg directs a, a, film, as good as, a film as good as Split, it would be regarded as a, a big failure for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I'm interested in how M. Night Shyamalan, I'm not saying he's an exception to the rule, but he shows that regardless of the critical appraisal, if you can continue to make commercial cinema, you will get chance after chance after chance. And I think his last successful, critically successful film was Most of the Village. That's 15 years ago. Yeah. Since then... He's done nothing particularly inspired. And I thought The Glass would be impressive. I haven't yet seen it, but apparently that one shits the bed too and is not better than Split, and in fact is worse than Split. And so Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Signs, and Parts of the Village are just tremendous. I would but, also say Split is... It is good, but it's good because of McAvoy more than anything. Yeah. McAvoy just absolutely giving it 110%. Yeah. Um, and and so the one of the points I'm making is that I am proud of female directors that, number one, don't take hack jobs, and number two, see film as a way for them to express themselves. Now, M. Night Shyamalan is in a position where he seems to genuinely enjoy, apart from maybe After Earth, he genuinely enjoys expressing himself in these particular pictures, um, commercial films. He's like Spielberg in that way. He's, what he likes to do happens to be commercially viable. And most of the time he hasn't had to take jobs for hire, although I'd say Avatar maybe and After Earth seemed unlike Shyamalan films, as if he yeah. was his version of trying to play the studio game and neither of which were, were particularly successful. He went back to doing what he feels he does well and The Visit, again, a return to form that's a three out of five film and it's just okay. 
Um, and I'm pleased that uh, the Kimberly Pierce did Boys Don't Cry and then didn't take some, didn't think to herself, right, I've got an opportunity now. I will take um, uh, a Julia Roberts rom-com and I'll try to, I'll try to make, if I get in there, now I'm within the system, I'll try to change the system from within and I'll make it more like my kind of thing or say five or six years down the road, I'll take a Catherine Heigl picture and I'm, I'm sure I can, if I give myself to it, I can tweak it and change it and make it 40% more me and it will do something, it, it never works like that. It so seldom works like that. So seldom is someone able to, a, a good example is Spike Lee's Inside Man. That's a commercial picture and he brings himself to it and it does work. That's a Spike Lee film and a great um, standard Hollywood thriller. But it's so often the case that artistic spirits enter into it thinking, I can make it more like me. No, it's not worth doing. And that's why I've got respect for Patty Jenkins waiting and waiting and waiting, essentially. I prefer them to tell the stories they want to tell than essentially be corrupted. And instead of, like with Claire Denis or Lim Ramsey, instead of four or five brilliant films over 20 years, you've got eight or nine and three or four of them are just diminishing their own legacy. Yeah, I mean, how much of that is choice, though? And how much of it is the industry doesn't want them to, I don't know, like like, yeah. uh, like the uh, Patty Jenkins thing. Um, is that a choice not to work for 15 years or is that just not being enough? Actually, I suppose another thing is, tying into what you're saying, the industry might be more unforgiving. Like, if you look at how many flops Ridley Scott's allowed to have and still can, can, can get given $150 million to do something, would uh, yeah. women be... It's a bit like, I often think this with actors, it's like, how many times does Jai Courtney have to fuck up? Before yeah. he stops being hired. Or Taylor Kitsch. There's Taylor Kitsch is, really is a better example. <laughs> and yeah. I like the guy, but he's never going to be as... Well, it seems like he'll but never be as good as he was. There was a period where Hollywood really wanted him to be a big star, and they gave him, like, three plum... Or Peter Berg in general. Yeah, yeah Peter exactly. Berg picked him from Friday Night Lights, and, yeah, genuinely thought, he's my guy. This bloke has something, and he can parlay it into a career. And I can't think of a black actor who would get who would get more than one shot at doing, say, a battleship. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Hollywood is unkind to directors that still consider themselves, first and foremost, artists who are expressing themselves. There are, obviously, there are many exceptions. Spielberg is one, Scorsese is another, but they just happen to be interested, for the most part, in things that are commercial. Scorsese through his upbringing, has found himself interested in Catholicism and gangsters, if we put it like that. The yeah, Italian-American experience mixed with his own Catholicism. Now, when he makes Silence, Kundun, Last Temptation of Christ, uh, those pictures are controversial and underperforming and less visible. Silence kind of came and went. But he will always have the capacity to make another Robert De Niro gangster picture. And the reason... He was successful in the 70s and kept being given chances is because in the, seven, in the 1970s, American cinema was interested in um, depictions of marginal masculinity or men marginalised. Scummy folks like Taxi Driver, Paul Schrader things. And that's the thing. Paul Schrader's one who he hasn't had an easy time getting his films financed, but he perseveres. And I think there's essentially the heart of what I'm saying is what I've already said is that I respect those female directors that want to make their own film and resist the corruption. Karen Kusama is a good example, and I think that's what dropped out of my brain and then has re-entered. 
girl fight. I think people don't necessarily remember it now, but it was the picture that broke Michelle Rodriguez. Came out about 2000, produced by John Sayles. Girl fight was really good, Karen Kusama. Her next picture was Eon Flux, and that's just the quintessential example of a director. Gender is not important, but a director taking a bigger Hollywood project, presumably thinking, this seems like a good fit for me. I can bring myself to this. There's a lot of... there's the themes I'm interested in are in this screenplay and it fucks up entirely <laughs> and it's not necessarily Kusama's fault it took her a long time to get big gigs again uh, she did a picture just a couple of years ago a small chamber piece of horror which was well received now Destroyer with Nicole Kidman and I haven't it's difficult to move on online or in life without seeing posters and uh, trails for that that seems exciting I think broadly speaking you're probably right Hollywood is more merciless and doesn't offer as many chances to individuals that haven't proven themselves consistently commercial. And what's consistently commercial is, yes, films that are orientated towards men and the typical Hollywood audience has traditionally been uh, Caucasian Americans. I think um, there's, there's plenty of signs of, like, you tell a story for women or by a woman or about a woman... And you will reap the commercial benefits of that. There's been loads of like great female heroines leading uh, big blockbuster stuff yeah. in the last few years, whether it's um, uh, Ray in the new Star Wars films or um, I can't remember Katniss Evergreen, is that her name, in the Hunger yeah, Games films? Her name, yeah. uh, uh, Sandra Bullock in Gravity. P- people love these films, and yet Hollywood's just a weird place. Um, uh, you, can, you can literally demonstrate that something's commercial. And they'll, it takes them ages to get out of an old style of thinking. Uh, one of the best films this year uh, was Sorry to Bother You, or certainly one of the most interesting, one of the most original. And I remember reading a story about that in summer that said it was struggling to get international distribution because people didn't think black films sold outside of America. This is despite the fact that three months earlier, Black uh, uh, Panther had taken $1.3 billion worldwide and Black Klansman had been a big commercial hit in America and overseas, and yet they still have this idea in their head, oh, I'm not sure if, 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 if a, this black film will sell overseas. Now, eventually they did take it over, and I think it's done respectable business, but it took a while. Mm. You'd think that after the, that first half of the year, with Panther and Klansman, they'd have been you know, itching to get this film released, but no, it took them a while. The first thought I have is that perhaps there is a lag, and cinematic distribution cannot respond so quickly. So if Black Panther had happened 18 months before, sorry to bother you, yeah, maybe then it could gear up. This isn't meant to be any kind of an apology for it. No, I know, I know. But with only three months run-up, you say Black Panther comes out in spring, yeah, does terrifically, with only then, let's say, 10 weeks to pivot, maybe sorry to bother you, can't manage it. I was going to pick up on something you said. Um, there's... I think a lot of a lot of the arguments we have in culture are about viewpoints and about um, entrenched viewpoints. So you've said that over the last few years, some films with female leads have done very well, right? And I think, well, there's, there's a couple of ways to look at this. Firstly, you could say that James Cameron is a director of action films. Another way of looking at it is that James Cameron is a director of women's pictures. Most of his films, in fact, all of his films have f- female leads. Strong, and um, not just physically strong female leads, but admirable heroines that we would like to be like. When I watch Aliens, I'm not thinking, oh, can't they bring back Hicks and Hudson? <laughs> I'm, I'm Ripley in yeah. the exoskeleton, in the power loader. 
Terminator, mm. Aliens, Terminator 2, The Abyss. Even True Lies, which was advertised yeah. as a Schwarzenegger spy film. You know, you've got this great role from Jamie Lee Curtis as she sort of comes out of a shell and she almost becomes the hero of the film. In yeah, way. exactly. She, that, and it's, it's facile to argue... I want to, to be. I. I don't want to be DiCaprio. I want to be being painted by DiCaprio. <laughs> but it is facile <laughs> to argue too vociferously against the gender politics of True Lies. Yes, she begins as a dowdy housewife. Yes, she. The scene when the interrogator is a little bit awkward now to watch. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think it should. It was. It should have been challenging then, and if it's challenging now, it's because it's kind of a challenging ideal. There's a lot going on there. I think. One of the great problems of 2018, 2019, and next year and the year before will is a lack of empathy and lack of understanding. In that particular scene in True Lies, Schwarzenegger feels aggrieved because his wife is attempting to indulge in an affair. That's a difficult thing for him to deal with. And then his sounding board is Tom Arnold's comedy character, who is <laughs> uh, quite strenuously detailing uh, all the ex-wives who've screwed him over and explaining to Harry, this is what you can expect now. You're going to be a single man. You're going to be divorced. You know, that's a... Those are difficult messages to hear. So, yes, he is, in that scene, he's employing, he's, he's deriving a, a level of vengeance, maybe. But it, it should be challenging. I suppose, yeah. And then what happens is, of course, that that relationship is tested and literally battle-tested because it's a James Cameron film. Then they become stronger and they become what they should be and what is always the case in James Cameron films and in Mad Max 4. They are symbiotic. They cannot exist without the other. That's what I liked about Fury Road. There's a moment where um, Max falls from the battle wagon and Furiosa catches her and I thought, oh, like an umbilical. Then later on they literally <laughs> have an umbilical with the blood transfusion and it couldn't be more clear. I was surprised. The critical reaction was, this is a feminist film. And I thought, this isn't a feminist film. It's an honest film saying we need both. 50-50, yeah. yin yeah. and yang. It's absolutely integral. The only way to sustain life is to have women and men. In that film, the women, they live in a barren desert. However, they, ca they literally carry a, <laughs> a bag of seeds. <laughs> it's very obvious stuff. And it, yeah. in a way, it's, it might, maybe it's so obvious that it goes over the heads of a few people. But the only way that, they can that life can be sustained is if they take their bag of seeds to the place <laughs> with the water, with the assistance of a man, and then there can be life again. And it's the, in, the, in the other direction. Immortan Joe has all the women but has problems with procreation because he himself is defective as a man. It wasn't a feminist film. It was George Miller quite stridently saying men and women must live together. Uh, the, well, the alternative is the waste. Feminism is equality. So based on what you said, it is a feminist film. Feminist, feminism <laughs> is meant to be about equality. The messages we hear at the moment are less about equality. There's a little bit too much point scoring. I, honest, I honestly do think that. I, I, it's not my intention to get into it too deeply on the podcast but I do like to think about it in in terms of the prisms of the films that we watch and that's why I thought that Fury Road was a, an important corrective I don't like it I don't like to see one group bash another group too vigorously that doesn't get us anywhere it what it does do is it takes our eye off those that are above us you know, if there is oh, an enemy... Oh, you talking about divide and conquer? Yeah, if there is an enemy, the enemy is, in, in my opinion, the enemy is the capitalism that we, in, that we have at this point, right? Anything that takes our eye off that is potentially dangerous. Anything that says that the world is a zero-sum game and 
um, in order for women to succeed, men must be removed. No, we can all succeed. This is why I'm a trade unionist. We can all raise up together. So we've both said what we think of the Oscars. I, I tend to think they're just quite a good, just a good launching pad for a discussion about the US films. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't get particularly upset when things get missed out, but at the same time, you can kind of look at this and go, there's some great films in that. I'd certainly put in Klansman, The Favourite, uh, then, you know... Bohemian Rhapsody, bit of a question mark on that. It's a really bland film. Yeah. <laughs> Undoubtedly with a great central performance. And whoever was in charge of the campaign to get that nominated for Best Film deserves an Oscar themselves. Because it's hard to imagine it was done on the quality of the film. Um, and the its director is at this time utterly toxic, and yet the film has succeeded. Well, we've discussed this off-part. I think he's sort of become invisible because he was kicked off it. I don't think people are really thinking it was his film. But nevertheless... And this, might, and this might be proof of that. It remains an embarrassment. Um, it's an embarrassment which I take some cantankerous contrarianist delight in <laughs> because I like to see, essentially, I like to see a mirror held up to people and they, they, they're forced to confront their own inconsistencies. And, and here we have one. The conversation, quite rightly, for the last two years has been about representation and redressing the casting couch culture that has persevered somehow for about 80 years. With Hopefully that is being kicked out the door. And yet the year's biggest success by some criteria would be Bohemian Rhapsody. It's probably the worst film nominated. Okay, and it's but... probably the worst film that's been in any of the awards conversations. I think it's, if anything, the Academy considers it potentially as a film about a gay bloke. I think you, you could be right. I mean... I think the massive success... I don't sort of begrudge the massive success of that film, despite not liking it. Because it's pretty good for, for gay culture that, uh, you know, one of the highest grossing films of the year. It took 750 million worldwide. Oh, that's astonishing. It, it might even be eight now. That's more than the first Iron Man film. It's more than the first Captain America film. It's more than, than the first Thor film. Yeah. It's an insane amount of money for a film of that genre. And it's about a gay guy. There is some controversy about how it represents gay culture. I personally think it doesn't shy away from... The, from presenting him as a gay man who had gay relationships and, you know, who, you know, you don't see him having gay orgies, but it's certainly uh, uh, talked about in the film. I think on the, if you look at it from that point of view, it's quite good that it's had all the success and that it's had an Oscar nomination. I just think on merit, the film doesn't quite deserve it. Mm. It's representative of something you've identified in the last two years of cinema, and that's Song and Dance Men. Tell us about that. Song and, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, this, this is interesting. Like... Fletch and we are both kind of obsessed with uh, how franchises have taken over the top 10 listings of the year commercially. So if you look through the 80s, I can't remember if we discussed this last time or if it made it into the pod, but you, you look at the 80s, there's only ever like two or three franchise films or sequels in there. There's, there's a James Bond film, a Star Wars film, a Star Trek film, maybe something like Beverly Hills Cop 2. But generally speaking, seven or eight out of 10 of the, the highest grossing films of the 80s, right through the 90s, um, are original screenplays, or they are adapted from a book, but it is like the first, you know, like Silence of the Lamb, something like that. Yeah. Whereas now, you can guarantee it's always... In fact, we've got the list up here. It's, you know, it's um, top 10 grossing films of the year. Uh, Avengers Infinity War, Black Panther, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, Incredibles 2, Aquaman, Venom, Bohemian Rhapsody, Mission Impossible, Fallout, Deadpool 2, Fantastic Beats, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Usually the Pixar is the original one. In this instance, of course, the Pixar movie of this year 
was a sequel, so it couldn't be judged as original. Exactly. Incredibles 2 was a great film. So I suppose Incredibles 2, I think, just um, Incredibles 2, Bohemian Rhapsody, I'm pretty sure, are the only original screenplays there. Um, one of those is a sequel, and the rest are adapted from stuff. I suppose Black Panther is close to kind of being some kind of original property as far as it's the first in a thing, but it, again, it's kind of part of the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um but an interesting, going back to Bohemian Rhapsody, an interesting thing about the past few years is that if you want to find a massive commercial word-of-mouth hit, it's for some reason it's with the sort of quasi-musicals. Bohemian Rhapsody, huge globally. La La Land was massive. The Greatest Showman, legitimate, yeah. a legitimate word-of-mouth hit where it opened with some nothing spectacular opening weekend, like $14 million in America, a million or two in England. And it just kept grossing that same amount because people were telling people it was Ace. People were buying the soundtrack. People were going to sing along. Some people were going to watch it three or four times. Yeah. And there's something about music and film being brought together. Star is Born, got to mention yeah, that. There's That's one more too. Mamma Mia 2. Mamma Mia 2. Yeah. Here we go again. Something, Pe- something's happening. Yeah, it? there's something there. And I don't, I don't know what it is. There's something about people loving music and wanting to go and see music and film. Uh, we're going to talk later, hopefully, about films coming out in the next 12 months. One that I'm kind of interested in is Rocket Man, And it's partly because I don't like Bohemian Rhapsody. Rocket Man was trailed before said film. And it looks the polar opposite. It looks like a very surreal, fantastic, uh, fantastical sorry, take on Elton John's life. And that's kind of what Bohemian Rhapsody was lacking. I'm not saying it has to be surreal. Mm. But any film has to have a perspective. Yeah, so otherwise what, it's not art. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I don't like about, um, you know... Wikipedia biopics like Bohemian Rhapsody because the fact is any screenwriter in the world could have written that film if you're just going to tick off all the events of the life yeah it's easy that's why I don't think it's a great film it's a great vehicle for Rami Malek who is deservedly nominated for best actor but it doesn't make it for great cinema um, so yeah Rocketman's something that I'm looking forward to is that Taron Egerton it's Taron Egerton and it's directed by Dexter Fletcher yeah <laughs> which I'm I think any Englishman will have a vestigial affection for Dexter Fletcher just because he's been around for literally 40 years. Bugsy Malone by Alan Parker in the late 70s, Press Gang in the late 80s and early 90s, yeah. then Lockstock as an Guy adult. films. Yeah. yeah, and he's Dexter Fletcher has always been there. There's something slightly comfortable about that. Yeah. He has a lot of friends. Oh, sorry, Fletcher took over in Rhapsody as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. this is it. Yeah, so it, I... I He's he has a lot of friends. It's clear that he's well liked. Jason Fleming is mates with him, and he can call favors in. Now the films he's made, Wild Bill, I understand, is very good. Sunshine on Leith is okay, and uh, he did Eddie the Eagle, right? Which is almost the living definition of a three star film. Yeah, that's okay. And if Dexter, Fletcher... I do think I will say I'll give it a bit of defence. I do think that film succeeds on its own terms. I think it's going for yeah. the big broad comedy feel-good film and I, I do think yeah. on those grounds it pretty much works and it, it might be that was, the... that was my media <laughs> that was my median film of the Eric <laughs> it's uh, Eddie the Eagle as a subject matter is parochial and maybe there doesn't need to be a five-star moneyball style fantastically directed picture about the life of Eddie the Eagle Edwards however one of my problems with Bohemian Rhapsody is that there is definitely a better film to be made about Freddie Mercury and Queen. Yes. And what's been given to people. Now, um, my dad's almost... My dad's probably a cineast. However, he's the sort of fellow that will also watch Bohemian Rhapsody and what he'll take away from it is that Rami Malek is Freddie Mercury. Yeah. And that's all he'll need from that film. However, yeah. 
when given a picture like Moneyball, which you know, you, there's different ways in which that could have gone, but to watch that, you feel such a deeper connection when screenwriters of the accomplish of Sulkin and Zalian and directors of the accomplish of Bennett Miller tackle what could otherwise be a, a moribund sports tale about um, overcoming adversity and sh uh, beating the critics. Moneyball is much more than that because it's very well written. Like well, you always bring your dad into these. He's like he's <laughs> like the everyman you know. He's the voice he of is, the everyman. He's the only everyman, and it shows the, the extent to which I'm in uh, our own. Let's make a point before you move on. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Just so I don't sound like someone who's being like old things are better than new things. This is the 1984. This is the year I was born. Uh, is that Ghostbusters? Global box office uh, for that year. The, the top ten high grossing films. Uh, oh no, sorry, I picked the domestic one. But that's fine. It's a, the, the lists are always quite similar. Yeah. Beverly Hills Cop, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Gremlins, The Karate Kid, Police Academy, Footloose, Romancing the Stone, Star Trek Through the Search for Spock, and Splash. Um, how many sequels have you got there? Two. And I think everything else on that list is an original screenplay. So Cop, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Karate Kid, Police Academy, Footloose... Romancing the Stone, Splash... Oh, they're all original screenplays, aren't they? If we go lower as well, Purple Rain, Amadeus, Tightrope, The Natural, Greystoke... Now, Greystoke is a property, although it's in the public domain. Revenge of the Nerds, 2010, it's number 17 before you get to another sequel. Um, this isn't something... Mm. We're not just pulling this out of our arse. Franchises dominate... Um, franchises dominate uh, the public interest. Now, it's not the end of the world. I think cinema is in a really strong shape. I think every mm. year there are just shitloads of amazing films. Every year there's at least, in my view, five or six five-star films, ten to fifteen fours, and then you know you work down from there. I think it could be even better than that. I, the, I the problem, but the problem is, it's not that everyone's not everyone's always seeing these films because yeah, visibility is a problem. Yeah, when, when you release um, uh, Infinity, Avengers, Infinity War, they put it in every single screen, and that then drowns out space for smaller films. You know, you leave no traces. Uh, you, you're first reformed. Um, mm. So, adult films. I mean mature films. <laughs> and there, there is a difference. Well, uh, Infinity War. You, you could say, I mean, people have talked about how Spielberg and Lucas, for all their talent, effectively infantilised cinema. And I would say, I like Infinity War. It's quite good fun. It's a bit of a shallow film. Uh, the ending's really good. It kind of does get towards some sense of existential dread that I have. I'll give it that. But it does feel like a greatest hits film. Yeah. It, it, it's the equivalent of listening to a greatest hits film. It's like you like all these other characters from these other franchises. Well, here they all are chatting to each other, and it's a good laugh. But <laughs> it's very, very surface level. I, I don't interact with the Marvel Cinematic Universe to a great degree, but recently I did see Ant Man, and that was fine. Why'd you pick that one to start with? It happened to be on the television. <laughs> oh, it was only ten minutes in, and I think I'd it's seen. It's good comedy, isn't it? It's good fun. It's okay. Uh, what it seems like again, it's like. It's cinema for squares. It's essentially, hey, do you like what Michael Pena does? Oh, but is that a little bit too edgy for you? Well, we'll water it down, and then you can have Michael Pena for squares. He'll do all the same stuff, but it's like um, modern music. We'll take out the peaks and the troughs, and we'll give you a nice, solid 5 out of 10 Michael Pena performance. It's not <laughs> going to scare anybody, but it's really not going to challenge anybody either. <laughs> and it's the same with Rudd. Ah, he's, he's charming. He's very likeable. He's funny. He can self-generate comedy. Uh, but we're not going to let him go as far as he does in David Wayne films, like they came together at Wet Hot American Summer. He'll just give you kind of what you got in Friends. You know, <laughs> so you, he's definitely our guy. I mean, that's another thing we'll come to at another time. So a, a couple of things I wanted to say was... Your dad the everyman. Well, I'll go, go to that in a, in a second. Yeah, we will get to that. Uh, if musicals are back, to an extent they never went away, most years feature 
a Disney picture in the top 10 box office and that Disney picture usually is full of songs like Frozen but even the Pixar pictures usually come with one or two songs embedded in the film. Even if it's just a Randy Newman ditty. Yeah, uh, and that takes us back to, you know, if you look at the box office in the 50s and the 60s, uh, uh, Dr. Doolittle, Sound of Music, Hello Dolly, which is featured in, in WALL-E, actually. Those musical pictures did well, and then every Disney picture that we know from the 60s onwards, Jungle Book, Aristocats, Lady and the Tramp, have musical numbers in them. I think Lady and the Tramp does. You know, I haven't seen it recently. I haven't seen it Maybe at it all. doesn't, but Aristocats does jungle book does so these musical pictures have never gone away entirely and if they're back then it's it's no surprise and i'm not even going to link it to any kind of social musicals i mean you you could say musicals when done right are very cinematic they're very visual Mm. it's very high emotion so it's easy to be populist if you're making a good musical if you're making la la land yeah there is a bit of an indie relatively grounded vibe to the way that's made but it's still essentially a love story yeah that allows you to have peaks of emotion crescendos if you will um it allows for spectacular dance sequences uh, which always if you do it again if you do it right like he does in that film look great on screen mm. uh like play with color i mean the colors and the production design in Ireland are great you know i love all those kind of like slightly muted yellows and and greens and stuff it looks absolutely solid uh yeah and also i mean i'm slagging off um mary poppins I do think the sequel is an awful film, (laughs) but people like it. Most people really like it. It hasn't done an astounding box office, but most people I know who like the first one have gone to see the second, and they've liked it. They like the songs. They like the song and dance. You know. Is it disappointing to see that an an artist who has self-generated something completely surprising in Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda, no one would say... Shit, yeah, you know, I want to do well in musical theatre and on Broadway, so I'm going to pen myself. He wasn't even a president, you know, he was the Secretary of the Treasury, and yeah. I think this is going to connect with millions of people around the world. Oh, and it's going to be wrapped, <laughs> and it's going to have a multicultural cast. None of that was expected. I know he did In the Heights before, right? Yeah. And then, as, to my, to, as far as I'm aware... The but it's first... going to be the first billion-dollar musical. Wow. Yeah. And then the first big studio Hollywood picture he chooses to do is a rote sequel to a film from 50 years ago. Um, is that disappointing? It's not the first one he did. He did the music for Moana. Um, but he wasn't in it, right? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I really like Hamilton and I think he's an extraordinary talent. I'm slightly concerned having watched Mary Poppins Return that he's a theatre actor, not a film actor. Right, yeah. Because um, he... I mean, it doesn't help that he basically his performance choice, bearing in mind he has almost nothing to work with, is to do the sort of mockney accent that Dick Van Dyke does. Which, you know, I think for a lot of people works as a nice homage to the original film. It feels really stagey. And maybe, again, we've talked a lot about how the right director can take an actor and use them well. Do you know what I mean? Um, It might be that there's a director out there who can identify a version of Manuel that will work well on screen. It absolutely isn't Rob Marshall, because Rob Marshall has all the same theatrical instincts that Miranda has. And I (laughs) I actually think... He, Miranda is part of the problem in the film. It's not um, Emily... Uh, I've forgotten the actress's name. Plays a silly me. Blunt. Blunt is really good in it. Um, uh, but, uh, but she's obviously a very experienced cinematic actress, so mm. she knows how to play to the camera. Miranda absolutely doesn't. And it, it was very disappointing. But, you know, maybe she's not the right film. Is it progress to say that in the 60s, 
it was uh, a Dutch American Caucasian who got to play uh, with a ridiculous Cockney accent, and now it's a Puerto Rican. <laughs> I guess so. And maybe in Let's 50 give it years that. time it will be uh, a Native American woman once yeah. again affecting a shit Cockney accent. <laughs> yeah. Although easily memorable. That's our marker of progress. Is yeah. it a bad accent? Well, it's a it's a cartoon accent. Um, it's not important for me to, that, <laughs> that they have honest accents in Mary Poppins. Um, anyway, right. <laughs> m- moving on to the what I was going to say about my old man. My old man and I were in the pub and when we meet each other at football we'll often discuss the previous fortnight's events and he usually comes to football having read the guide that comes with the guardian on a saturday so he's had that on the train for 90 minutes and so he said and he meant it as well he said i've been reading about that call me by your name and i've said to luke with a lot of people if they heard that from their parents they'd think oh what's he gonna fucking say but my dad's just become more and more liberal over time it's surprising and heartening because I think part of it is just having an open mind, like David Bowie, having an open mind until the day you die. David Bowie, I, I love watching the stuff he did in the 80s. It was commercial, but it's almost as if he thought, I can't seal myself off from what's popular just because it's popular. Let's see what I can bring to it. Let's see if there's things there that are interesting. You know, the bloke goes into Labyrinth. There's nothing ironic or yeah. winking about what he does in Labyrinth. He is the Goblin King. <laughs> he wants to be the Goblin King. He's fantastic in it because yeah. he has an open mind. He says, you watch the way he interacts with the Muppets. And it's just, it's superb. He's in, enjoying himself as he always did. And my dad's a, a little, my dad's not David Bowie, but he's, he's <laughs> a little bit like that. And so my old man says, I've been reading about that, call me by your name and it's going to be really good. And he said, but you know, like Army Hammer, what, no, f- first obviously he said, who's the bloke in it? You know, uh, the white bloke. And I said, uh, Timothy Chalamet. No, you know, the, the other one from the film. Hammer. Army Hammer. Yeah. yeah, Army Hammer. He's not gay. And he, he's playing <laughs> a gay character. You know, I, I read about that hashtag, Oscar's so white. I think there should be a hashtag, Oscar's so straight. And I thought, <laughs> oh, yes, very good. And I don't agree with the Oscar's so white hashtag. But I kind of... Th- this was the situation we're in. My father's become so liberal that I don't even agree with his level of <laughs> liberation. But then I thought I went home and I was thinking about it, and then I, re- I checked and I realised, and this was last, this was about a year ago. Uh, this century, there has not been a single out gay man nominated for best actor. Really? And there still isn't. And yeah, Spacey out. And that was American Beauty was last century. So last century, um, I think you've not, gone through the list. Yeah, Nigel wow. Hawthorne for Madness of King George III. Yeah. Ian McKellen for Gods and Monsters, and Spacey, who I think... Well, he wasn't out at the time. It would, yeah. I would say that the turn of the century was the last time anybody who knew cinema thought that Kevin Spacey might not be gay. By 2002, 2003, I think it was very clear that he was a closeted gay man, and I don't attach any um, value judgment on that, but he took his mother to the Academy Awards. That's it. Like you couldn't think of a more classic gay move unless he took like well, Eastwood Doris did that. Day. Eastwood <laughs> took his mum to the Oscars. I th- well, I think that was partly just like uh, no. Actually, you got a good point there. <laughs> but no, but it's an interesting thing. Why? And, and, why is so that? this year? But straight what, men playing gay men. Yeah, happy nominated again, Heath so Ledger. Got, yeah, Heath Ledger, Rami Malek, Javier Bardem for Malek. Before Night Falls, Sean Penn won for Milk. That no gay actors are getting nominated for Best Actor, even when there are gay roles. <laughs> and I think actors should play... Uh, there should be very little limit on what an actor can play. I do strongly believe that. However, it gets to a point where you think, how about you let a gay bloke play a gay a lead? A gay man. 
Yeah, and there's this. I think we may have even missed a couple of examples. I now, think. I think part of the problem is, again, it goes back to an old way of thinking. Is you want to, if you are making Brokeback Mountain, you want a commercial name in there. Yeah. And there aren't many uh, game gaming. Sorry, I keep saying gaming. Um, <laughs> gay actors who have strong commercial viability. I'm not justifying it. Yeah. I'm just trying to explain why. And you've sort of seen hints of people who could become that, like Zachary Quinto, but actually maybe haven't quite become the yeah. in that in enough in in a high enough league. To, to do it, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, there's another one. What's that Welsh guy called who was in that Dracula film? Luke Evans. Yeah. He yeah, came that's a, out. That's a really interesting one. But, but, but that, you know, I he think went he back ca- in. What? Yeah. That's, I, I didn't know about this, but a, a good pal of mine mentioned to me that when Luke Evans was, as soon as he was part of the Bond discussion, his people had him essentially retract his gayness isn't that it's a sad how, thing how did he retract his gayness stop talking about having partners it was pronounced That's interesting. It's, it, this is the now so do you reckon there's still a slight maybe prejudice is the wrong word but just that it's it, just what's commercial no one should yeah. ever forget that hollywood is about the bottom line yeah. that's why there's been seven and possibly no there's been eight fast and furious pictures and now a spin-off those films are okay but it's what's commercial yeah. I, I, and yeah luke evans was out and then for a brief period and it's the, it's an example which i think we would miss because we don't read gay times and we don't have essentially we don't have our ear to the gay ground is I, or what, what would you call it the pink twitter i don't know <laughs> yeah um but it was really pronounced and it was noticed the by, gay vine yeah the, indeed <laughs> it was noticed <laughs> we got there in the end so that that was my dad brought that to my attention I thought, oh, that's a funny thing to say. And then I realised, holy shit, he's actually got a really good point. And I don't think... See, this is the thing. I don't think that straight actors shouldn't play gay roles. But I think that when when you've got a situation where 100% of nominated gay roles yeah. are, are uh, essentially straight actors, then that actually is a problem. Yeah. And um, in terms of this century, now we could find a couple of nominees that we probably think are closeted gay men, but it's cantankerous to suggest it, yeah. and they're not out. Yeah. Well, uh, so you know, that, and that is culturally important. Yeah. The idea that everyone knows they're gay and accepts them playing whatever role it is they choose to play. Let's look at the best films of 2018 then, and primarily I'd like to kick off my part by looking at essentially what I should have been watching. For some reason, I didn't see most of the truly great pictures of 2018. So, here's my quick rundown. First Reformed, Cold War, You Were Never Really Here, Black Panther, The Old Man in the Gun, Mandy, Roma... And sorry to bother you, I saw none of those. Oh, wow. I thought you were listing your best films. <laughs> no, no, and I know that those are the best pictures. That's the new David Lowry, which I was excited to see and haven't yet had the opportunity. Sorry to bother you, as Aidan has talked about before, and, and it's my opinion, it's basically Putney Swope for this century and we sounds deranged and brilliant. Now, there is an opportunity, though, and I wanted to bring this to the attention of the listeners. If you're in the London area, February 11th, Cold War will be at the Regent Street Cinema. The following day, A Star is Born is at the Regent Street Cinema. And on the 24th, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant have been nominated for, 
on the February 24th. That's at the Regent Street Cinema. And so this podcast is sponsored by the Regent <laughs> So I'm going to be catching up with those pictures. And sorry to bother you, I hope to see at the Regent Street or the Waterman's this weekend. It all depends on whether I get leave or not. So I know these films are important. And especially, you were never really here. And I'll, I'll speak briefly about a thread that I picked up on, even though I hadn't seen these films. I read some of the reviews. And what this cinema year seemed to be about was um, masculinity removed. Really interesting. It's not a response. I think it's just several directors had the same thought at the same time and expressed themselves in this way. First reformed, leave no trace, you were never really here, and a star is born, all focus on men consciously choosing to remove themselves from a culture or live on the edge of a culture. And in this, in this moment, it was interesting to have that conversation across four or there's possibly more, but across those four films. And not all by male directors The first either. man, he removes himself from the earth and puts himself on the moon. He, he does it's the always, same thing, isn't it? Well, I'm joking. <laughs> no, you are, but he does... There's something about well, actually, that actually, there's film. something about his, his withdrawn character. He feels peripheral, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Leave No Trace is Granick, and You Were Never Really Here is Lynn Ramsey, so that's female directors, but the other two are by blokes. It's Schrader, as usual, examining his own religion, his own Calvinism. A Star Is Born is Bradley Cooper, uh, and I found that pronounced and interesting. I'd like to see more conversations about that, and I'm going to watch all four films this year, and essentially report back. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I would say, uh, let's look at what you didn't see. Cold War <laughs> is absolutely one of the best films of the year. It's astonishing. I mean, I've only seen two Pavel Pavlovsky films, and it's the last two, this one and Ida. They both ap- just, just blew me away. Like, uh, And I've seen the first two. I've seen Last Resort and My Summer with Paddy. So oh, right. I haven't seen well, one between of us, in 15 years. Between us, we do have it covered. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, actually, one film I was slightly down on the show was Roma. Now, it's visually astonishing. It's got loads of imagery that's definitely going to stick with me. I think Pawlowski spoiled me. Yeah. Because in 90 minutes, he gives you a film that is as beautiful, if not more beautiful, that, you know, it's a cliche to say, but it is true. You could take any frame out of it and it would put it on a wall. It's a great piece of art. Yeah. Um, You've got an astoundingly complex, rich performances from uh, Joanna Cullig and is it Thomas Cott? Thomas Cott, the main guy? Anyway, whoever the male lead is, he's great. Um, and you get very, very rich, challenging character drama. I don't really fully comprehend it, to be honest, because it was throwing so much at me in such yeah. a short space of time. Um, whereas Roma, it very didn't quite get inside her head enough for me, personally. And as a result, when you have a film like that that's stretched over two hours, 20 minutes, I, I, it's almost like there wasn't quite enough there for me to, to grasp onto. Um, but, I, but I wonder what I would have thought had I not seen Pavlovsky effectively do something similar in a more complex way, you know, with as much skill in a much shorter... Because both those films are 90 minutes long. It's astonishing. Uh, what else did I see? Uh, Black Panther, I'm... I admire it. I, I, I mentioned earlier I get a bit of digital fatigue with a lot of the Marvel films. Um Although I do watch a lot of independent cinema, because I grew up watching Spielberg's and Mecca's Cameron, I'm a little bit of a special effects junkie. I'm interested in making the Unreal real. And Marvel do seem recently to have taken a little bit of a step backwards um, in terms of overuse of green screen, uh, slightly lazy CGI. I always quote 
they for some reason they refuse to go to fields and film things, and they'll they'll just green screen it. They did it in Civil War, they did it in Thor Ragnarok, and they've done it again in Black Panther. So aesthetically, while I think production design production design is great, um, uh, I don't think as an as a blockbuster action film, uh, it's necessarily on the same level as say something like Mission Impossible Fallout. You could argue a few things are. Um, but but at the same time, that's the level it's competing at. Um, but I will also give Black Panther credit for um, it is interesting politically. You know, it's about Pan Africanism. It's about you know African nations and and a fictional African nation sort of uniting in you know in revenge uh, against you know the the imperial past that was imposed on them. That's interesting. It didn't quite take it far enough for me. I think this is the same thing that uh, Captain America: Civil War did, which is. <coughs> It has interesting ideas and it wants to tease the idea of a grey morality, but it can't resist in the third act resetting it to a binary good versus evil thing. Yeah. The classic thing in, in Civil War, not Civil War, sorry, The Winter Soldier, is that it asks the question, when you're loading this much money into defending your nation, is it defence or is it fear? That's an interesting question. But halfway through the film there's a twist. Guess who's, who, guess who the bad guys really are? Nazis. And I kind of feel like... The Hydra. Yeah, yeah, it just resets it to make it more platable in, in the superhero genre. Yeah. So I had that slight problem with that with Black Panther. But, you know, hey, it's disgusting issues you very rarely see in, the, in those kind of films. So I will tip my hat to it for that. Um, I saw Mandy. It's absolutely shit. <laughs> <laughs> But hey, I'm not for me. I think you kind of need to be really into the aesthetic and ideas of heavy metal right. to really get. I know people who are really into that. That just thought it was like, it was like the album artwork for some '80s metal album writ large. Yeah. But I'm not into that. But I will say, um, uh, what's the British actress in it called? Riseborough. And Riseborough's really good in it. She's well worth watching. Um, and and you get to see Cage being Mad Cage, which obviously has some appeal. Uh, those are the films I've seen that you uh, that you haven't. Oh, and I've seen you. You, you, you were never really heard. That is it is really good. Mm. It's great. And actually, it ties into a film coming out this year that I'm interested. Joaquin Phoenix is undoubtedly, in my mind, one of the best actors currently working. He's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And also tying into something you've said about you talking about it from the viewpoint of directors who do an interesting art house film, then try and play the game. Uh, Phoenix has resisted big blockbuster stuff. Yeah. But what have we got coming up this year from Todd Phillips? Joker. Mm. He's playing the Joker. Now, you know, again, franchise fatigue, reboot fatigue. I'm instinctively kind of not interested in this, except for the fact that it's Phoenix. What is it about this film that Phoenix has decided, you know what, I'm throwing my hat in the superhero ring. Yeah. You know, when you consider the films he's made recently, like that and The Master, which is, pun intended, masterful, uh... These are fascinating performances. They're complex performances. They're challenging. I'm just fascinated to see what that guy does with what is a role that has already been played iconically at least once. Mm. Um, by uh, I was going to make a joke then about Suicide Squad. Jared oh, Leto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's already been played iconically at least once by Heath Ledger, arguably twice by Jack Nicholson. Third time by Mark Hamill. Um, yeah, true. For many people, he is That's the true. Joker. Yeah. And even Cesar Romero's interpretation in... Adam West's Batman is memorable. Yeah, is is well regarded and memorable, and is partly what Jack based his on. Uh, yeah, I think Joaquin Phoenix doing in doing a completely commercial picture is as exciting and or, or as, as interesting as if Christopher Nolan made a comedy. And immediately, I think, what's he going to bring? Yeah, what can he bring to a two-hour comedy with Hugh Grant 
and <laughs> Emma Thompson, let's yeah. say. You know, you'd want to see that. It was it was exciting enough to hear that like Dunkirk's conceit was uh, It would be Killian Murphy and Michael Caine, but yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah, accept yeah. your point. Oh, I suppose Marion Cotillard and um, Tom Hardy, maybe. <laughs> or Anne Hathaway and uh, yeah. Christian Bale. We could go on and on. <laughs> but um, yeah, so Dunkirk's conceit was that ramping thing I do in all my films. What if I did that for 90 minutes? Yeah. And I, well, that, that's a good, yeah, I want to see how that's evoked. And yeah. Dunkirk was very good for most of its running time. Uh, the best films of the year that I did see, I'd say, is Widows, Unsane. A Mission Impossible Fallout. Widows is something we can tie into the Oscar Oscar talk. Um, Isles, that's also my top ten. I think it's an, astoni- an astonishing achievement. I'm overusing the word astonishing, I am aware. But it is. <laughs> I didn't get nominated for anything. Again, you know, I'm sure all the people involved aren't going to lose any tears for it. The film did quite well. Uh, many of them already have Oscars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whether it's Steve McQueen or Viola Davis. But I just thought that was a brilliant film. And it's a good, it's a interesting seeing a director like that making effectively a thriller yeah but but again bringing himself to it it's drowning in like sort of a weird melancholy do you yeah. know what i mean yeah it's a, a, a oppressive the cinematography conveys that superbly it's got that yeah. shot in that everyone talks about but with good reason you know this is a, a thriller about a bunch of widows you know, trying to ro- rob someone to complete the the work of their dead husbands. Mm. It should be a B-movie. That shot that everyone talks about where he's in the slums and he gets in the car and the camera stays in the car and then it drives for less than, what, three or four minutes? And then he's at his rich house in Chicago. Mm. I do think that elevates that from those genre trappings because it becomes a comment on the world. Yeah, It has almost no right to be in that kind of film, but it's there. It's him saying, look at this geography. Look at the geography of... Of, of poverty and insanely rich yeah. it's absolutely mad and it really shocks you I knew it was coming but I actually it still shocked me because I once I knew it was coming I knew there was something coming to do with the car yeah. and when I got into it I remember thinking oh, this can't be the car thing because nothing's happening yeah. <laughs> uh, even the conversation they're having in the car isn't massively important to the plot but when it gets there it just floors you it's, it's, it's an amazing film it's ostentatious but and we should give some credit as well for Steve McQueen, and it's written, co-written with uh, Gillian Flynn. Who wrote yeah, Conquer. yeah. And again, that's a novel that has a lot to say about relationships and media. Uh, it, it's a complex novel. But again, it's done within the page-turner yeah. thriller um, genre. Getting in there, yeah, it's difficult to do, but getting into a commercial space and still sowing seeds that create thought. I yeah. think that shot's ostentatious, but is it the best shot to communicate what he wants to tell us it might be yeah it might be the best way to do that yeah and that's what essentially what we're looking for is that's what spielberg's very good at doing finding a a a camera position in which to best tell and best depict what he wants to communicate to us the information he needs to present to us and that's why spielberg uses say in the youtube channel every frame of painting uh there is one episode dedicated to spielberg's movement of camera and it isn't ostentatious, but there are so many instances in his cinema where he shoots for 60, maybe 90 seconds without a cut or has only three or four cuts in a three-minute sequence. And it's all about placement of camera. There's a really good one in The Lost World. There's a couple of good ones in The Lost World. Um, and while watching them, you wouldn't have that uh, that Quaron feeling of, oh, here we go, this is the thing I've heard about. 
is very natural and it's only upon analysis you realise, shit, he hasn't cut in 45 seconds, yeah. which is a long time. I mean, when um, I first noticed this sort of thing, not with Kubrick, but with M. Night Shyamalan, when I was watching Unbreakable almost 20 years ago now, and I realised, I was saying to my mum, he's, he's going 9, 15 seconds without a cut, but it was ostentatious, it was noticeable. Um, it drew you into the scene, but it was more over a choice of style uh, then with Spielberg, who has a, a, a surprising innate understanding of the most exciting place to place a camera, which also communicates what he needs to. Yeah. As for Unsane... I didn't see it. That's, that's, I remind, watched, me, remind me what it is. I... It's Soderbergh directing Claire Foy Course, in yeah. a psychological drama thriller in which she's accidentally committed, then has to deal with the administrative hoops of declaring oneself sane or being declared sane while at the same time existing within a facility that seems to have her stalker in it? Or does she just imagine a random nobody as the man who did legitimately stalk her two or three years prior and over whom she changed her entire life and switched states and switched cities? It's really good. So when people talk about Claire Foy and they know her from The Queen, I only know her from Unsane. And I liked it, but I'd, I'll watch anything that Soderbergh does. I thought The Nick is one of this decade's great overlooked TV shows. I've certainly overlooked it. Not seen it. It, uh, it that so again that introduced me to Andre Holland. When Moonlight came out, I thought, oh, it's the bloke from The Nick, uh, and that's why right. I wanted to see Moonlight. Whereas for most people, they saw Moonlight and then would have said, oh, that bloke's in something else. I understand. Yeah. When um, I saw Andre Holland with Mark Rylance in Othello last year. And again, it was not for his performance in Moonlight, but I was thinking this is the bloke that I've seen in The Nick, who was superb in that. Let's move on to your favourite films of the year. Blind Spotting. Right. Uh, that was very good. Uh, again, actually, it's not nominated, but it's just another great film about race. And it's quite complex because it's not. It, it's actually the thing that makes it interesting is you have um, a, a black lead character who's on probation and he's best mates with a white guy who I would describe as. He's culturally the same. I don't want to say he's culturally black, but he's basically from the same corner of poverty yeah. that they are in LA. However, he's kind of a bit of a live white because he can afford to be because of his skin colour. Right. And he becomes a liability for his mate when he's on probation. And it plays out in a really, really interesting that way. That sounds funny as well, though. Oh, and, and this is the thing. It's very... Um, it is very funny. There's loads of really funny moments and it's got a nice sort of visual flair to it. Uh, it's really impressive. And I, I think... Uh, it's one of the most. It's one of the most overlooked gems of twenty eighteen. Yeah. Uh, Beast. Did you see Beast? This was the film with Jesse Buckley and Johnny Flynn. It was an English. Film. Oh, I've heard about it. Yeah, it's really, really good. It's an absolutely brilliant sort of psychological thriller, um, and you know, it says quite a lot about loneliness and love and what draws people together. But it also, again, just has that nice thriller thing. If it keeps you guessing about what's going to happen right till the end. Uh, Johnny Flynn, I only knew is like he was like a folk artist wasn't it yeah part of that new folk movement um with Noah and the whale and yeah Marling. i just knew him because i knew two girls who really fancied him and used to go right. to all his gigs turns out he's actually a brilliant actor he's really really good at it he's on stage now with um uh the guy who plays uh, john snow in game of thrones kit harrington kit harrington i don't know what is wrong with me in names today i just can't pull them out of <laughs> the bag uh black clansman yeah um oh yes yeah you loved that didn't you i really liked it i think it's uh Again, it just goes to that thing of you take a sort of genre idea. I'm not saying it's a buddy film necessarily, but you do have that element of a black cop, a white cop. Ah, uh, uh, no. 
Go back. Black cop and Jewish cop. Black cop and Jewish. Jewish. But that's the. That, I'll interject because Luke and I talked about this a few months ago. But it was great to see Spike Lee more sensitively handle Judaism, well, Judaism and Jewish identity because um, essentially, to put it simply, he's behaved in a bigoted way in many of his other films. I won't say. I don't mind if he's a bigot. I don't mind if he's bigoted against Jews. And I also agree that. Why is that? Um, it doesn't diminish his art in my eyes. Okay. And it doesn't make me less enjoy his films. And I will agree with some of the arguments he's made. So when Mo Better Blues came out, he has a couple of characters in it, the Flatbush Brothers. They're played by the Tuturo Brothers. And they are Jewish stereotypes. It's fairly outrageous. <laughs> but what Spike Lee said was, listen, there are Jews within the entertainment business, within the music business, that behave in exactly that way. That's true to life. And I won't shy away from it. There are also black people that sell crack. There are black athletes. There are black entertainers that do this, that and the other. We've had countless um, depictions of them in the media. And I've suffered that. So now you're going to suffer this. And I'm, what I'm looking for in cinema is honesty, reality, truth. And he does find truth in stuff. But what I liked, yeah, one of the things I liked about Black Klansman was that for the first time, he had a bloke thinking, what does it mean to be Jewish? Because that's the thing with Flip Zimmerman. He's never, he says in the film, never really considered his own Jewishness until suddenly he has to act um, contrary yeah. to the existence of Judaism, you know? And then he realises, in a way, I'm becoming more Jewish than ever. Before, it was just something that happened to me when I was 13, you know? Yeah. But sorry, go on. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, uh, again, it's just that thing of you have a sort of conventional conventional story framing yeah but through that he gets to say a lot of interesting things about race it's kind of a meditation on race yeah you know yeah. all those great shots where it's just uh black leaders speaking and you see these uh black faces almost uh <laughs> bohemian rhapsody style framed in darkness I, a lot of oh, that yeah, a yeah. lot of that imagery really stayed with me and i think balancing that kind of um reflection on race in america with essentially a comedy drama detective thing, and it is very funny. Yeah, I think that's really a skillful achievement. Um, I think, I mean, it's his first nomination for best director, which is controversial in itself. I can't comment too much on it because, uh, as I shockingly admitted to you last week in the pub, I haven't seen any of his early films. Um, but I just think, judging this film on its own merits in this year, he absolutely deserves to be in there because I think that uh, I just think it's just a great achievement and. A genuine challenge. I think, like, often with the best director category, and it's why I, I do separate it from best picture and think it's possible to get nominated for one and not the other, is that some films actually do present more of a challenge for the director in terms of balancing all those tones and bringing yeah. it together. So that's why I think he he should be in there. I agree with you there. I agree that although I'm not sure if it's one of the best 10, 15 pictures of the year, I think those people that think it is may do so because they're less familiar with his oeuvre, and you've said that you are. Yeah. So Black Klansman was less of a surprise to me because Spike, yeah, Spike's been one of my favourite directors for the longest time. And I've never... This is the thing, I've always considered him as a New York director. I don't like when people say he's a black director. No, he directs New York pictures. So does Woody Allen. So does Whit Stillman. Yeah. It's about New York. It's about reality of New York. That's what Do the Right Thing is about. It's essentially... Here we are. Is it One Hot Day in Harlem? Is that the plot? Yeah, essentially, in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Here we are. We're six different races. We're, uh, like, Irish Catholic and African-American, West Indian, South Korean, um, Puerto Rican. We all hate each other. <laughs> How do we get along? 
Yeah. Because, and it's, it's not even necessarily hate. It's just, we're stuck here. We're all economically dependent upon each other. We all have cultural differences between not only our own, within our own groups, but with the other groups. Can we get along? With difficulty. And that, that, that's the truth of that. And that's the truth of... I, I, our culture is seeking to separate us and define us only by our group identities rather than us as individuals. I don't... and Yeah, that's what I mean. Spike Lee, yeah, he's a, he is a director who is black, but he is a New York director, just to say, Kevin Smith is a New Jersey director. Yeah. Um, and Albert Brooks was always considered to be a Los Angeles director. Tarantino could be an LA director. Tarantino, like myself... And that ties into something of an upcoming film, Once Upon a Time in True. Hollywood. I think, like myself, Tarantino is a director who's from nowhere and everywhere. I feel I don't have a strong cultural connection to anywhere, essentially. I have a strong cultural connection what to cinema. What about Craven Cottage? Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose there. But I think Tarantino's the same. I think he's from Knoxville, but really, he's from films. Oh, yeah, actually, you know? I, agree, I actually think... Most of his films are about films. <laughs> yeah, that's one of his problems. That's why I think he hasn't progressed as a... As a well, uh, he hasn't progressed like Paul Thomas Anderson, who does have a strong cultural connection to the Valley, to Torrance, to California in general. It was a long time before he really left California. Yeah, in fact, all his films were set ex almost exclusively in California until Phantom Thread. I'm trying to remember. Is um, Where's The Master? I think that's in Los Angeles. I can't remember. And of course, Hard Eight. Sure Hard Eight takes time out in Reno, but strictly speaking, he's a Californian director, and that's everything he does communicates that. Whereas, yeah, Tarantino's home is the cinema, just like mine. I mean, I'm from East London. I'm from East Anglia. I lived in San Francisco. I studied in Norwich. I'm now in London. Street I'm the opposite. I'm. I feel like I'm London, even though I've spent only a third of my life here. But that this is the beautiful <laughs> question, and it always brings me back to a line I picked up in. Gone Baby Gone of all films, which I think is a fine film, but it's not one that necessarily stays in the memory. I concur. But there's a great bit where Ed Harris's character is talking to Casey Affleck. Ed Harris's character has a French surname. He's from New Orleans, Louisiana. And he says to Casey Affleck, they're in Boston, of course, he says, you probably think you're more from here than I am, but I've lived here longer than you've been alive. So what does that mean? Yeah. And it's just left like that. And I've always been intrigued by that because I don't, connect with my surroundings like most people do i don't know if it's a failing or if it just makes me different uh or say oh you know this pub and i think i don't know the name of the pub i know that i've been there 15 times yeah. over the last five years i didn't i didn't know the name i don't know what brews they have on tap i know what <laughs> i did with the people when i was in the pub i remember the conversations i had i probably re i might remember the toilets more than you might I remember. remember what one person you met once said was their favourite film. Yeah, potentially. <laughs> and I would remember if I went into the toilets and realised, oh, terrific, right, so the toilet works and there's toilet paper and there's a hand dryer, but there's no hand soap. Why can't anywhere <laughs> get all five, you know. <laughs> but let, let's move on. So, so yeah, that was um, Black Klansman. Uh, Widows, we've discussed. Yeah. A Quiet Place, I think, is absolute, you know, tight as nut. It's, it's just a great, great horror film. This is Jim from The Office's picture. Jim from The Office. Yeah. It's got a great concept. It's executed well. The cast is great. It's uh, one of Emily Blunt's other great performances of the year. There's a young actress called Millicent Simmons in who plays the daughter who's a really, really key part of how the plot unfolds. Um, she's absolutely brilliant. She's like partially deaf. I can't remember if the actress is partially deaf or not, but she is. It's just brilliant and it's got a great perfect ending it just doesn't it's just one of those action films that it just ends it i can't i don't want to say too much without giving it away 
but it just ends at exactly the right point. And it's a really yeah. cool ending as well, where you're like, fuck yes. Um, that inevitably kind of sets it up for a sequel, but I can give or take that. We're in a terrific place for genre cinema with uh, Bloomhouse and A24. I've talked a lot about Annapurna Pictures, yeah, they're great. Megan Ellison, but A24 and Bloomhouse, what they've done for horror to facilitate horror's re-entry into, if we could call it serious cinema, I don't think horror needs to transcend its genre. No, I don't. But... Some do. It has done. It is done. Get out. A quiet place. And Bloomhouse produced Black Klansman as well. Yeah. And Whiplash, which I think a few people forget. Yeah. And so now Bloomhouse, which, if you remember, essentially, although it started in two thousand five with some straight to video pictures, it made its essentially made its bones with Paranormal Activity. You know, spending a hundred grand, getting back one hundred eighty mil. Mental overheads like that. But it's used it's worth that- pointing out that a lot of big films aren't insanely profitable in that way that that film is because it costs $200 million to make a Black Klansman. It costs $300 million to make a Star Wars. Yeah. And as we know, we saw a Star Wars film flop this year. Black Panther, you mean, not Black Klansman. Sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, you're right, yes. Solo, we even Solo, probably, Solo. Solo probably took uh, a few hundred million worldwide, but because it costs so much and they spent so much on the marketing, yeah. it's a flop. I mean, it would probably make its money back over time. But then the point is, that's not what the studio wanted. They wanted that to take $1.5 mm. billion. It was, dollars. it was ruinous to their business plan. So the Obi-Wan picture was put back. The Boba Fett film Boba was put Fett back. Boba Fett film, yeah. Um, it switched it up entirely. And now JJ is... I, I don't like calling him JJ. That suggests I really like his films. Which but you don't. <laughs> I, they don't transcend pastiche. Uh, <laughs> Abrams is back on the third one when originally I think Johnson was going to... No, it wasn't. There was a confusion when they announced it because... I swear the original press announcement said that Johnston was doing uh, film eight, writing and directing, and writing film nine. Okay. Um, that seems to have been some... That is erroneous. Um, Colin yeah. Trevorrow was the one who was hired to direct episode nine. Um, and then he was fired. <sighs> Kathleen Kennedy didn't like the script. The last film he did was genuinely god-awful. Like, properly. I mean, I've got time for uh, Jurassic World. Uh, the Jurassic World. I think it's succeeds what it sets out to do yeah um but my god book of henry is absolutely abysmal and i'm so glad he's off episode nine yeah i'm more of a fan of jj than you it's, it is one of the films i'm most looking forward to next year um i'm actually genuinely interested to see how jj closes a story because jj i i do think he yeah. has a sense of uh spielbergianness to him i'm not saying he's as good as spielberg but i think he has he, he's got that thing of putting Fun, uh, fairly straightforward uh, characters in suspenseful situations and just taking you along for the ride. I think he does it really well. But he always kicks off stories. He kicks off Lost, but he left other people to close it. He kicked off The Force Awakens. He kicked off Star Trek. Um, he very rarely closes it. And I'm interested to see what does <laughs> what does Abrams closing a story look like? Yeah. Um, and also, I also think he's just he's just solid. I think I don't think he's directed a bad film. I'm even an apologist for Star Trek Into Darkness. So that's the second one. Yeah, so yeah. I'm kind of I'm kind of on board with, uh, I'm kind of on board for that one. Um next film on my list is The Breadwinner. This was a an animation about a uh, a girl in I think it's Afghanistan who becomes the chief earner for her family, the breadwinner of the title when her dad is kidnapped by the Taliban. Um it's quite a tough story, but again, you're talking about transcending. It's got this. She she's telling her younger brother in the in the in the animation a story that is basically analogous to what she's going through. 
it's almost on the nose, except whenever she tells that story, it's got this lush, fantastical, spiralling animation style that kind of helps really elevate it. And also, considering that some of the stuff you're seeing is quite tough, it almost forms a bit of escapism within the own story. And, it, and they're just the two narratives running alongside each other. Although it's kind of a bit repetitive, they really complement each other really nicely. And there's another example of a great female director. I think it's Nina Toomey. Is that her name? Anyway. Yeah. Um, it's just another example of a, a female director who's doing great work and who perhaps should have been included in the best director list. But but then that taps into another problem, which is since you had the since they started the best animated film Oscar in two thousand and two, increasingly less animated films get nominated for best picture, even yeah. though they deserve to, and they never and they never have been nominated for best director, which is interesting. I I think she should potentially should have been in. There's certainly loads of Pixar films where Pete Doctor on Inside Out or. John Lasseter on Toy Story One way thing. Why weren't they nominated for Best Director of the Year that came yeah. out? That's like those those films are all time classics. So yeah, the breadwinner. I think you've got to be well, these ceremonies. These awards givers need to be careful of ghettoizing anything. Uh, and I ghettoize animated films in the same way that I ghettoize the superhero pictures because I generally feel that those themes that are explored in animated pictures or Marvel pictures can can be explored in a more adult way elsewhere and I am better able to interact with them and especially as concerns animation I just I like actors performances and voiceover doesn't do enough for me just captured in a lens no, that's fair enough for me I that's, like that's your taste that's fair enough yeah and it's something I'm conscious of and I'm ready well, but to would you deny? But, but would you deny that I think we're living in a, I'm not the first to say it We are. I think we are living in a golden age of animation there's still another animated film to come on my list Yeah. and my top 10 doesn't even include films that I think are brilliant like Coco Isle of Dogs uh, The Incredibles 2 uh, Brad Pitt uh, Brad Pitt Brad Bird is someone who I think has his own aesthetic he has his yeah. interest aesthetically it's all very 50s science fiction kind of you know mm. forbidden planety but hey that's that's his thing and he imbues that and these big blockbuster films he makes and Incredibles 2 is another billion dollar grosser so um, uh, yeah I mean fair enough if you're not into animation I do think it's a great time to be alive if you love animation um, the animation I'm not into is the, the American school of animation which I'll give you the one of the best examples is every movie poster which has an animated character shot side on with their arms folded and one eyebrow arched as the, just, the Zootropolis thing Exactly that, yeah, and but again, but that's a great film. It's a, it's a rubbish that. poster, but it's that's a really rich, funny. Comedy. And then within it's a great comedy within and these pictures, uh, characters. Uh, what, what would it be called? It's not that they're anthropomorphized, but that they look exactly like their character. So, a character with quick wits and a smart mouth will be lithe and fox-like. Uh, the desk sergeant or. Let's say the captain. I haven't did seen. Did you Zoot- watch Zootropolis? No, I haven't. It sounds like you have. I haven't seen <laughs> Zootropolis, but I imagine that the captain is put upon, and because he's a captain, like eighties cop pictures, drinking that pink goo for the stomach because of you know <laughs> constant intestinal problems. The captain is like a buffalo or a large bull. You have seen Zootropolis? No, I haven't. <laughs> and looking like Mr. And Mr. Incredible, all we need to know about his character is already drawn for us. Now, while that's to an extent that's true when humans play roles there's greater nuance to it um, i think i think in a family film you're allowed to deal in broad strokes and you're allowed to give visual clues so like I, I, and i'm not um so if we're talking about if we're removing ourselves from the disney pixar stable of american animation then pictures like 
let's say Persepolis, and any number of films that come from Triplets of Belleville is another one, but any number of films that come from outside of North America probably don't have that. They're more idiosyncratic. But at this point in time, I can't be bothered with... So Wreck-It Ralph, for instance, like he wrecks things and he's the size that he is and he's got a little assistant with the voice of Sarah Silverman. I like Sarah Silverman, but I feel like I know where that film's going to go and I prefer, I prefer seeing those themes explored with live-action people. Fair enough. What's the next one? Phantom Thread. So oh, I'm, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm doing this off UK release date. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I've included Phantom Thread. Uh, actually, I don't think we should talk about this much because we went into so much detail on PTA last time. Uh, but it's just a great, great achievement, isn't it? We will talk more extensively about Paul Thomas Anderson post Boogie Nights later this year. Aidan and I will reconvene and we'll do the whole bit. We'll do Magnolia. I don't want to use Punch Drunk Love as a launching punch. Yeah, yeah. We'll I, probably yeah. start with Punch Drunk Love and then move on to the others. And I need to rewatch The Master, and I haven't seen Inherent Vice in years, and I only saw it a couple of times. But Phantom Thread, yeah, Phantom Thread was fantastic. And you know what? That's another example of a picture in which a male has removed himself from society and is living on the margins, as a kind of self-imposed exile where... Do you reckon, though? But he's, to an extent, the, yeah. he's the centre of the scene. What is it called? Haute Couture. Okay. Yeah. He's the centre of that scene in London, so surely that... Does that not contradict your interpretation? Potentially, but it's an examination of a character who, in, the, in terms of Reynolds Woodcock... Is that his name? Yeah, it's a great name, yeah. isn't it? In terms of Reynolds Woodcock... That's the only reason it's my number three film. <laughs> um, it might be that he's trying to do both simultaneously, living a very singular life w- without attachments, certainly without with limited female attachments, with limited attachments in general. He's rarely seen with real friends. He has yeah. his sister. And then there's uh, um, various society associates like Julia Davis' character... But generally, he's a singular fellow. I, I, again, another film which, a bit like Fury Road, suggests, no, you need both. You need men and women together. I love the... Com- the yeah, it's a conversation. The conversation, the constant conversation well, between fanta- Reynolds There's and two fantastic female roles in that film. Yeah. Um, Leslie Manville. Leslie Manville. Yeah, yeah. And what's the actress called? Vicky Cripps, is it? Vicky Cripps, yeah. She's really Alma. good. She's fantastic. So what's the next one? Cold War. I kind of, of course, yeah. talked about why I love that film, then, so I won't go into too much detail. Uh, the, second, the next one, another animated, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um, I nearly put this as number one, because I think, like, in terms of films that visually break moulds, and, you know, cinema is ultimately a visual medium, it was the thing I saw that just impressed me the most. It's certainly the, probably the best superhero film I've seen since The Dark Knight, in terms of just flooring me with what they achieved there. Um, I would have... I mean, I would have thought that... I sort of only dismissed this, because I kind of just thought it was like one of those Saturday morning, almost B-pictures animations that you get with superhero stuff. And yeah. I say that, I'm aware I'm being very dismissive of all those Batmans with Mark Hamill, which were apparently great. But it's just not so... Yeah, but that's what this turned out to be. This is Mask of the Phantasm for this decade. Yeah. Is that important? And, I, I, uh, and I'm guilty of dismissing that, and I almost dismissed this... And honestly, it's just, it doesn't look like anything I've seen. And um, the story's mad and bonkers and goes into, I mean, I should have got a clue from the title, Into the Spider-Verse. It just goes to some mad places. It blends different animation styles and makes it work. Partly because it treats it as a joke. It's like, it finds humour in the fact that you've got different characters from different genres of animation interacting with each other. It's, it's, it's really good. I would have thought that as long as you're into animation, you should get a big kick out of this. Um, I only know one person who doesn't like superhero films that's seen it, and he was a bit underwhelmed by it. Uh, 
which has made me wonder, like, or oh, maybe you do need to be into superhero films a bit to enjoy it because it's so much about, like, what makes a superhero? What's the emotional trauma that defines these characters? Yeah. Uh, and again, going into parallel universes and seeing different versions of this. So maybe you do have to be into superhero films to enjoy it, but as long as you are and or like animation, it's just absolutely stellar. And I do think it'll be a game changer, both in terms of the way those films look and also just commercially. It's taken like $180 million uh, domestically um, off like a $90 million budget. So this is going to be a new side of the superhero genre you're going to see. It's going oh, to change yeah. things. I had thought it was completely supplementary when I saw its advanced trailers. First, I thought it might be only something that I didn't even understand, like straight to streaming. Yeah, no, I honestly... I to run that. alongside. Um, secondly, I thought this looks like something of a cash-in. And thirdly, I thought it was uh, like Lego Movie... Lego Movie Two's out this year, but in between there was another one, right? Like Ninja Go Go or some shit. Yeah. There was another Lego <laughs> yeah, movie, yeah. I think, and I thought, okay, so they've got, you know, they've got the main thing, but then running alongside that for cheaper. And the best example, I suppose, would be the there's the Cars films, and then there's the, the, planes, ones, the planes films, which are clearly inferior and are designed to be inferior, and they're essentially the like Simba, uh, Lion King Two, Simba's Pride, yeah. or the second Aladdin picture. I think eventually Disney at the end of the 90s did sequels to everything. Also worth pointing out, um, this is a black lead. Milo, he's not called Milo, Miles Morales has a lot of uh, cachet culturally because he is uh, an important um, black lead in superhero comics. Uh, I'm not mass- I don't read comics, but that's what I understand. And, you know, he's got his own film and it's great. I'm not going to pretend it's got anything great to say about race. I don't think it has, but I don't think that's the point, mm. you know. As people said with um, Black Panther and Wonder Woman, it is important just just for the aesthetic of it to see someone like you on screen being a hero. Yeah. Um, and that's not nothing to sniff That's at. something I think that was lost, though. I'll touch on it briefly. As we entered the 80s and then by the middle of the 90s, black characters were just characters. They were just there. Uh, a good example is Die Hard, in which it isn't important that Al Powell and Argyle are black or that the um, the black baddie is black, the the part of the uh, criminals team, Hans Gruber's team, they just are black, and it's not commented upon because why should it be commented upon? Well, yeah. But now we've we've, we've had there's been a, a level of indoctrination, and it's through universities which creates a worldview in which we must see things through the lens of race, and it's foreign to me because I grew up, I I didn't have a multicultural family. Well, other than that one half is English and one half is German, which to some people I think is important to other people. They would consider that only to be white, which is offensive to me, if anything. But my cinematic upbringing was entirely multicultural. The first important film for me was The Blues Brothers. Then it was Trading Places, and immediately it was a different paradigm. I know, but the fact is there are important, troubling questions about the way black people are represented culturally and economically that have to be discussed. So, therefore, it is. But that's why you should have both. You should have films like Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse yeah. where um, the fact that he it's not about race, it's just, hey, there's a black superhero. That's important. As important, I would say, as having films like Black Klansman, like Moonlight, like Blindspotting. Oh, no, I, I'm not saying yeah. those those themes shouldn't be discussed, but what I'm talking about, and I think, I think you know what I mean, is that it sounds good that here's a Spider-Man film and it's not Spider-Man is black, it's Spider-Man happens to be black. Yeah. There's a 
tremendous difference between those two concepts. And if you look at and if you look at the advertising, it was actually sold on. Hey, look at this crazy thing where this young Spider-Man character meets all these other Spider-Men from other yeah. parallel universes. That's what it was sold at, not the black thing. But if you but if that's something that's important to you, it's there. I'm just I've come to the realization that I'm at a remove from popular culture. Some of it's the lessons that people seem to be learning now are things that were self-evident to me when I was like nine years old. Like what? Well, just, you know, I grew up on Eddie Murphy, Whoopi Goldberg, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, and it wasn't an important thing. My dad never sat me down and said, here are some great African-American artists that you need to respect. It was more like, I got these tapes down and I'd say, who's this? Oh, that's Aretha Franklin. Who's she? She's a really great singing lady from the 60s. Far out. Who's James Brown? He's a really great singing man from the 60s and 70s, and he lived a mad life and did loads of mad things. Cool. And it was... I don't know, it wasn't segregated in as much. It was always the case that all of that was as valid as anything else. It wasn't ghettoized, And their blackness was only a, a, a source of positivity, I suppose, rather than something that it didn't mark them as different to me any more than someone from, you know, Harrogate would be different to me as someone from East London. I'm very different to you. <laughs> Make no mistake. And what was your last one? I think we've got one uh, more. Again, it's another film from last year's Oscar cycle, but it was released in the UK, which is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Oh, of course, of course. Um, and yeah. the reason I did pick that over Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is that uh, I actually re-watched them both in the same week. So it was the first week of this year I saw Spider-Man for the second time, and then I finally bought on Blu-ray uh, Three Billboards. Um, naturally, the second time I watched Spider-Verse, some of the sheen and thrill that you've got from being like whoa what the hell am I watching naturally goes away that's not a flaw it's just you watch something and more times you get used to it three billboards I had a really raw emotional power that I do not think ebbed in any way the second time I watched it if if anything I think it ramped up a bit I think it's a really powerful film you know again if I'm judging on visuals I'd go with Spider-Verse but at the same time I think and this also ties back into the Mary Poppins chat he, Martin McDonough is a director from theatre, but I think he has enough of a cinematic sense. You know, I'm not saying he's Scorsese. Mm. I'm not saying he's Spike Lee. I'm not saying he's Pavel Pavlovsky. Uh, but, uh, he, but, he but he does have enough of a sense that it doesn't feel like you're watching a play, which is the problem I mm. had with, say, Fences last year with Denzel Washington or Mary Poppins Returns. Um, you know, he stages yeah. things nicely in terms of the, the police station is opposite the, uh, the, the, the advertising agency that books the thing for the for the billboards yeah. he films the billboards in a really nice way they're always staged quite nicely um, and he just frames all the human drama great there's that great sequence where uh, Sam Rockwell you know having learned that his friend died goes into goes into the agency goes up the stairs punches the girl who works there throws the guy out the window yeah. comes back down it's a really impressive shot it's got that it's got a song by the band called Monsters of Folk I think and it just, it really swells and has a great, great power to it. Um, and also, I just think, I think the great achievement of that film emotionally is, it's a film that has quite a nihilistic view of justice and retribution. Anyone who attempts to find it, <laughs> find justice or retribution for their wrong, it backfires on them, but it doesn't go the way they think. You know, she burns down, spoiler alert, she tr- burns down the police station um, Thinking that I think at that point she thinks Sam Rockwell has burnt down her uh, her billboards, yeah. but it turns out it wasn't him at all. Um, and you just have lots of things like that where 
it just go it, the, the person that should be punished for, for something wasn't mm. and ultimately it, it has a lot of like open threads in that sense um but but it does all that and has that nihilistic view whilst also managing to be really funny really moving and it sort of feels like it ends in a happy way even though it hasn't actually resolved any of the, of the things you don't find out yeah. you never find who killed the daughter um they try and go off to beat up or kill this guy that's attacked some other woman and then they decide not to it's all quite open but actually it no they do what do you mean they do go off to do it don't they they do but then they go are you sure and he goes no and he goes we'll try to do it tomorrow and they go okay and they turn the oh, car on yeah, and yeah. that's the ending um uh, I just think emotionally, it's really, really complex. Funny, it's moving, yeah, exactly, and yeah. it's just a, it's just a, it's a proper gut punch of a film. I think really I, good. I was heartened, but I was genuinely surprised that it did as well as it's, it did as well as it did, and penetrated the culture to the extent that it did because it's a complicated film. It's nuanced, it's honest about people. So, for instance, the last thing I missed a scene, but I think the last thing. Franny McDormand and the girl ever say to each other is essentially a harsh word, isn't it? Yeah, she. I think she drops the. She calls her a seabird. No, no. I think she says, "I hope I get raped." Yeah. And then I think the mum says, "Well, I hope you get raped too." Yeah, and exactly. If, and then she actually does. Yeah. And Franny McDormand's character was unlikable in many ways, and I think it was well demonstrated. She had right on her side, but was still unpleasant to most people, and yeah. probably was before. Her, her daughter was raped and murdered. Yeah. And un, unkind to people. And like Sam Rockwell's character as well, I think it did enough to show that he was a fuck-up, but there were reasons why he was an alcoholic. I think it went a long way to show that people who committed vile actions hated themselves. Woody Harrelson's character was one of the most well-adjusted and happiest, and most of his movements seemed to show such terrific empathy, especially towards Rockwell's character, because if I remember rightly... He writes in his own suicide letter, his own suicide note, he says something like, you can be a good cop, you can be a good person, you may not even realise it. He says something like that. You know, he does. It's, 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 he reads the letter as the, the place is burning down around him. Yeah, and it, re- it requires empathy. to. And this is what's... The, 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 I think this will be my watchword for 2019. It certainly was for 2018. Cinema is empathy. And what we need in our environment now as much as ever, is empathy. It's essentially looking at it from the other person's perspective, not seeing you by your identity signifiers, but seeing you as an individual. The same with everyone we encounter. That's what I like about... one. What I love about cinema is that when I watch Do the Right Thing, I'm on everybody's side yeah. and against everybody. And at different times, you, can sim- you empathise with all of them and you think, I can't believe he's done that. And at the same time think, well, he was quite justified in that action. And the, the same applies to Three Billboards. 